can also be really political in an office. I shared an office with a woman who ate Captain Crunch for breakfast every morning at her desk. And like, you just don't eat a food that has noise in it, like noise in the name as part of the brand. I'm Lori Messing McGarry, and this is Real Fiction, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, writers, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. We cover media transparency and the evolving industry of journalism. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. A new story collection from author Wendy Fox should come with a trigger warning. If you were able to remember what an office coworker ate for lunch, how they dressed, how they battled for the perfect temperature, you'll want to stay here for this conversation. This new book release, What If We Were Somewhere Else, delivers razor-sharp office microdramas that all of us can relate to and maybe even resent years later. But the book also invites us to consider how numbers show up in a spreadsheet, how data analysis informs life and human behavior. The story has even had me thinking about how journalists rely on published statistics in reportage. Because after all, numbers are plotted and arranged by human beings. Some of those analysts may have even lied on their resume. Author Wendy Fox joins us today on Real Fiction to discuss her new book. My guest today is Wendy Fox. Her new story collection, What If We Were Somewhere Else, was just published. This wonderfully timed book takes a look at work life, the daily intimate grind of working with people you don't choose, and razor-sharp reflections on the personal backstories that go a long way in explaining professional clashes. Is there anything more timely than an examination of corporate culture as millions of people are deciding they will never return to a cubicle? Wendy Fox is the author of four books of fiction. She has been a finalist for the Colorado Book Award and is a frequent contributor to several national publications. Her latest book was published by Santa Fe Writers Project. Wendy Fox joins me from Denver, Colorado. Wendy, welcome to Real Fiction. Thanks so much, Lori. It's great to be here. I love this book. I knew immediately when I heard about it that I wanted to get my hands on it, and it did not disappoint. I have to tell you, though, that if someone had told me 
that spreadsheets, like Excel spreadsheets, could become high art in a story collection, I would have said, I don't think that's possible. But it's really amazing what you do with little cells, split cells, data correlation. So tell me something about this. In your stories, there's a beauty in numbers and a predictive quality to life based on how it shows up in a spreadsheet. Where did the inspiration to connect spreadsheets with empathy and humanity come from? That's an interesting question. Part of what happens in our current reality in modern life. We talk a lot about data. People are familiar with the phrase big data. There's so much information, right? And so you're trying to look for a way to make sense of it. So in the stories, using the charts and the graphs in spreadsheet functions is one way that people are attempting to make sense of it. And some of it also comes out of my own experience as a marketer who did a lot of analytics and realizing that as you move information around, numbers really can tell a story. And in fact, they are not as fixed and hard and fast as we think they are. Like, I think that sometimes we think about numbers as being factual, but it really depends on where you look at the number and how the number is presented and the context within it. So some of that was just my own experience of realizing, like, if you look at a different time period, the numbers tell a different story and that nothing is really, really fixed. And But mostly we're just trying to make sense of things. Do you find that in your experience, it also might depend upon uh, an unconscious bias behind who is populating data? Absolutely. I mean, because that's absolutely true. Like, like objectivity is really hard to achieve, even though it's something that I think sometimes culturally we put a lot of weight on. Journalists are encouraged to be objective. Um, again, we like to think of this, this phrase that the numbers don't lie. But in fact, the numbers lie all of the time because it is humans who are doing the calculations. Even if you think about computer programs, humans write the algorithms right? And so there is always some kind of bias. And in the stories, in the stories, the characters, um, in particular, the data analyst is trying to use the numbers to get to the information that she wants. I think that's a really important point. And we talk about journalism on this program a lot and media transparency. There's such pressure for a story or a an event to be backed up by numbers. And so, so the question really is, where are those numbers coming from and how are they being interpreted? And uh, you do, so that's something that you do that's very powerful in this story collection. And what I love about it being fictional stories is that it can kind of come in on the slant because what you do is you put the reader into the heads of office workers in an un- unnamed company in Denver. And while a lot of the issues feel very universal, I really loved it. Some of them felt like they were so very specific to Colorado. And Melissa's character in particular is fascinating because she's working in the office, but she had grown up in a mountain commune setting. You explain kind of a a hesitancy for traditional Western medication. Could you perhaps read a passage? It's on page 49, and then we can talk about that. Of course. We did not participate in Western medicine. Instead of vaccines, my mother gave me echinacea, colloidal silver, oil of oregano, and my father prepared poultices of male order and local herbs, bandaged onions to the bottom of my feet, dosed me with elderberry. In the mornings when my father pulled the onion slices from my feet wrapped in cheesecloth, we'd examine. See how it's changed color, he'd say, turning the slices over in his hands, 
that's because it's drawing out the toxins that were in your body. In my own kitchen, in my city apartment, once I left a cut onion out overnight on the counter and woke up to the same grayness, and ear candles too, after years of rolled up newspaper dipped in beeswax, I burnt a retail ear candle from the natural food store down to its nub while attached to nothing, and the results were the same, crud sucked up into the flu. It's not true that they were backwoods, my parents, or unintelligent. They had DDT kidneys. They grew up when doctors smoked cigarettes during surgery. I was born from them, and their idea of the world and what they wanted from it, and what they wanted was purity. Oh, I love that. When I read it, I remembered being in a natural foods store, and it was about this time of year, and I remember a woman speaking very loudly, and she said, oh, I'm not, I never get the flu vaccine. I never get the flu shot. I take oil of oregano. And (laughs) I thought, well, that's different. So I, you know, I remember researching and I thought, well, yes, there are people who do that. What inspired the character Melissa? And what do you hope readers will take from that passage? That's a, it's a super interesting question. Um, this story came out of me being really angry at anti-vaxxers, and this is pre, pre-pandemic. And I wanted to write a story where the people who declined to participate in vaccination, especially of children, were punished. And so it started out of this like super dogmatic, really pretty bad story. There's a young child who dies in the story. And as I went through revisions, I realized that I didn't necessarily need to moralize to people, right? Like if you think about reality, the death of a child is 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 hard enough. Like people don't, people don't need to have something dogpiled on top of them about their own personal beliefs. And then, so I started asking the question of really like, why is this making me so angry? And I had to, I had to unpack a lot of that. And that's when the story started to focus around Melissa, which is, you know, this idea of she loves these people in her life so much, so deeply, even though she sort of like category categorically disagrees with some of the ways that they chose to raise her, um, some of the choices that they continue to make. And that just felt like something worth exploring, right? Because we, we run into that all of the time. There are people who we love very, very deeply and just don't understand what they're doing. I want to ask you about the character Sabina. Sabina, uh, is a young character in the story collection. And you know what? She really kind of broke my heart. She works in a coffee shop um, after having dropped out of college. And there's this this line that just killed me. Um, There's a moment of realization for Sabina where the line is, she was their barista, not their peer. She realized suddenly that, you know, everyone her age was still like full of hope. They were going to classes and they were um, preparing for their future and she was making their coffee. Um, But what also happens in this scene is that the environment that she works in, this is prior to when she she goes to the the data-driven office where we spend most of the time in the book. But when she's in the coffee house, that environment influences her to fabricate her resume. It's really sad and wonderful. And I'd like to discuss this. Can we have you read a little bit from page pages 34 
to 35. Okay. This starts out with besides, it seemed like all the two groups ever did was type. And the two groups refer to consultants in the coffee shop and the writers who hang out there. Besides, it seemed like all the two groups ever did was type and she could touch type. It was the writers she admired more. Some had a few published pieces and all had books in various stages. She liked their dreaminess, the way they made it up as they went along, even if most of them tipped poorly. And it was the writers who, when the city entertained zoning a chain coffee shop only a few blocks down, hosted a rally and showed up with pithy signs, and it seemed to work. The chain did not appear in the neighborhood. Maybe even Sabina's job was saved. The coffee shop had responded by opening up for more readings instead of just the Tuesday open mic that had been standard since well before Sabina's time. Every other weeknight and alternating Fridays gave space to the writers, and so she heard the way they fabricated, and she heard the way they frequently could not separate these fabrications from their own lives. She understood them a little more as she worked on the resume, as the project stretched from just one break to two to three to a whole month of breaks. Sometimes she thought she was judging them a little harshly. At other times, she thought if they would spend less time drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, they'd get more writing done. <laughs> I love that so much. Um this seems like a passage and a scene that kind of pulls the different strains of your life together. Um, what can you tell us about writing the character of Sabina? Writing the character of Sabina, you know, she's young and she's frustrated and she doesn't know necessarily what she's doing. And the experience that she has is when she meets one of these consultants who helps her, you know, do do a resume and teaches her how to interview is that she understands that this idea about, you know, getting a certain type of corporate job, that it's there's just as much fabrication. And in many ways, it's just as ridiculous as as the people around her who are doing performance poetry and fighting with one another. And that there's that there's kind of like a skill to each one. She has to make a decision for herself about which way she's going to go. Is she going to stay in the coffee shop with the people who really in, in some ways are sort of her friends or friendly to her? Or is she going to go in this different direction and make some money? And she chooses the money, even though she is something of an artist herself. And so, you know, for me, that's something that um, is resonant to my own life. I do have a, an MFA. I taught for a little while as one does. And then there was a point in my life, you know, really in my early 20s, where I just thought like, I am literally never going to be able to pay my student loans as a teacher. I'm not sure if I can get like a sofa that is not a hand-me-down from my grandma. Um, and got really frustrated with that because even though I liked teaching and I liked being much more in a uh, field that was adjacent to the arts. I also realized that I had to take care of myself. And in the contemporary late stage capitalist culture that we live in, that means money. And so I also had that experience of choosing that over what I really wanted to do artistically. So it's almost like now I'm looking at this again, it's almost like a survival technique or a survival instinct that gets back to what it's like watching these different personalities play against each other. Wendy, when I was reading these stories, um, it just brought to mind so many of the office intimacies. And I know we hear the term microaggressions a lot in today's society. And I thought about all the little micro resentments that had built up. 
in this horrible work environment that I had been in when I was very young. And you have this incredible line that just crystallizes these little resentments that build up. And it comes early in the book. And the line is, we were okay with him. And it was Dave, because he was not jumping the queue for the microwave. And I told you before we were speaking today that I've decided that you are a wizard because it jogged a memory about the microwave that you wouldn't think would be so important, but it obviously had it had embedded deep, deep into my psyche. And the story is, is really this. Uh, the president of our company every day would go in to the microwave in the little kitchen area we had and microwave his lean cuisine. And it, every single day, it was chicken and broccoli. He would put it on for whatever setting, and then he'd leave to go take like a 30-minute phone call. He'd come back, repeat the microwave cycle, and it would just go on and on. And we were too timid to remove his microwaved product out and heat our own food because you know we didn't want to anger him. It would bubble over, it would make a mess. And so I think finally I just started eating peanut butter sandwiches and avoiding the microwave altogether. But it made me think when I read this story, just the depth of irritation you can have with coworkers and the inherent power imbalance. So what made you think to include food and the microwave in these stories? Because I thought it was brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, you know, a, a lot of people who I've talked to about the book will often tell stories like that. And sometimes I find myself sort of apologizing to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I re-triggered the PTSD of the <laughs> office. Um, when I, you know, I, I left a job several years ago and I kept telling my friends, like, I feel like I got out of an abusive relationship. And finally, one of my friends was like, because you did, dude, that's why you feel that way. And, and a, a lot of people have those experiences, unfortunately. I don't think it has to be that way. But, you know, to answer your question about the food, I included that because food is really personal to many people. Um, food is, can also be really political in an office. I shared an office with a woman who ate Captain Crunch for breakfast every morning at her desk. <laughs> And like, you just don't eat a food that has noise in it, like noise in the name as part of the brand when you're sharing a space with someone. It's just not a thing, but people do it. And and then it's also kind of unfair for others to complain about it because if she wants to eat Captain Crunch, then have the Captain Crunch. So it's just, it, it's so personal. It gets so political in offices. Um, it's, it's one way of talking about all of the other things that are sort of swirling under the surface, right? You know, people start, someone starts changing their lunch and then you're like, oh, they're on a diet or they bring in leftovers and you're like, oh, they had a party. So it's a way that you know things about people because um, there's this way in which in offices, so much of your personal life that maybe you want to keep to yourself is really exposed because you're with people all day long. The flip side to this is that there are co-workers who crave a return to a traditional office. And I really loved the, the line um, from the character Christian's point of view, and it's in reference to his wedding. And the line is, the kind of thing that people look back on and say they love about a job when there is care and companionship in the day instead of just spreadsheets. So you probably had to balance all of this as you thought about this book. Yeah, because it is also true that sometimes, you know, we we meet really marvelous people at work or we have really wonderful experiences with them. You know, the the parts that are the most challenging, I think really 
for me in the book, and then also in my own experience, had to do with power and the imbalance of power. Um, Because to your point, the camaraderie sometimes can be really, really beautiful. I want to remind listeners, my guest today is Wendy Fox. Her new book is titled, What If We Were Somewhere Else? And it was just published by Santa Fe Writers Project. And I would like to ask you about your path to publication. It's no secret that I am a big fan of Santa Fe Writers Project. I think Andrew Gifford is an editor with a truly original eye. He's been a guest on this program. He's a legend in DC, as anyone who listens here knows. How did you find a connection with Santa Fe Writers Project? And how did you come to get this book published with them? Sure. I wanted to say for listeners, just in case anyone is wondering, Santa Fe Writers Project, the topics in the books don't necessarily have anything to do with uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. There's a backstory there, but yes, um, but it is mostly based out of the DC area. For me, how I got connected with, with SFWP is a lot of the same way that a lot of people get connected with um, smaller independent press, which is, you know, admiring the work that they publish. I published a novel with Santa Fe Writers Project called If the Ice Had Held that came out in 2019 and was excited to publish this second work with them. And it's it's been great to find a press where I really feel like I have a home. And I think that small and independent press is really publishing things that are often ignored by the large industry in New York. Not that many of those presses aren't publishing wonderful work, but Andrew and other editors like him at independent presses across the nation are really giving writers a chance to tell their stories in a way that is not always accessible by to, in the larger industry. I think that's beautifully said. And as a reminder, we had Andrew Gifford as a guest on this program uh, early on in the in the program's inception. And we focused a lot on independent publishing. And for anyone who is interested in the full backstory of why it's called Santa Fe Writers Project, you can go back and find the Andrew Gifford interview. Along those lines, uh, Wendy, can you talk about what you're working on now? Right now, I am working on what I think are two novels that have absolutely nothing to do with one another. One of them I've been working on for a really long time, and I've told many people I'm not quite sure what to do with it. But, you know, I just today read an article in Lit Hub by the writer Hazel Hayes called Unlearning the Sunk Cost Fallacy in Writing and in Love. And Hmm. so I'm not sure. I I may need to think about this with some of these projects that have just been spinning for a long time. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. As I said in the introduction, this this book um, by Wendy Fox is titled, What If We Were Somewhere Else? It's wonderfully timed because we're all having conversations about work life, what it means. We've had a chance to reflect on what it feels like to work in an office and what it feels like to have a little bit more personal time at home. So Wendy, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Real Fiction today. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much. It was wonderful.
I'm Lori Messing-McGarry, and this is Real Fiction, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, writers, and changemakers to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories, reportage, and social impact. We cover media transparency and the evolving industry of journalism. All Real Fiction conversations are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com.